everyone. I'm Dr. Tammy Nelson. Welcome to The Trouble with Sex. I'm so excited to introduce you to our guest today, Mary Ziegler. She is so smart and so articulate. She is the Stearns Weaver Miller Professor at Florida State U College of Law. She specializes in the legal history of reproduction, family sexuality, and the Constitution. She's the author of After Roe, The Lost History of the Abortion Debate, and Beyond Abortion, Roe versus Wade, and the Fight for Privacy. Her latest project, Abortion in America, A Legal History, Roe versus Wade to the Present, will be published by Cambridge University Press. And the reason that we're having her on today is to talk about reproductive justice and abortion rights. You have to listen to this episode. This is the episode that we all need to know about. I get asked about lubricants a lot. Very often, all of my clients and my friends and my husband wants to know about lube. And one of my favorites is Uber Lube. It's simple, it's silky, it's never sticky, which I hate. I know you hate that about lube. And a little goes a really long way. This lube is really great. It reduces friction, but you still get sensation. And what it doesn't have is even better. It doesn't have parabens, there's no glycerin, and best of all, there's no scent or taste. You really don't want that in your lube. And it lets you feel like there's absolutely nothing between you and your most intimate pleasure. So go to uberlube.com and use the promo code Dr. Tammy, D-R-T-A-M-M-Y, and get 10% off plus free shipping anywhere in the U.S. That's uberlube. U-B-E-R-L-U-B-E.com, the promo code Dr. Tammy, because feeling is everything. Mary, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. So let me ask you, before we dig into the meat of your ideas, what do you think is the biggest trouble with sex today? I don't know. I mean, because I work on abortion, I tend to think that it's still that people have sex without knowing if it will mean reproduction, regardless of what they want and when they're ready to reproduce. So that's probably the one that occurs to me for unsurprising reasons, I think. <laughs> yeah, that makes total sense. So the biggest trouble with sex is that people have sex not really understanding or realizing or taking seriously the consequences, the fallout. <laughs> like you without, could, without even knowing what the consequences will be, right? Because, I mean, we live in a world where state legislators and federal lawmakers determine what the consequences will be, and the consequences keep changing depending on what the courts and lawmakers say. And so normal people have no idea when they have sex whether their decisions are going to have lifelong consequences or not, and that strikes me as troubling. I feel like what you just said now, I feel like all these <laughs> legislators and lawmakers are like in bed with us now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they've, that's that's been true, I think, in a way. And it's it's likely to be more and more true as time goes on. Oh, that's so unsexy. I do not want those guys, all those middle-aged white men in bed with me. And, <laughs> you know, like, or with my, you know, when I think about my kids or the young people today having sex, like, I don't think they realize that all of these guys are, like, looking down on them, standing around their bed, going, you just wait. You just wait. Oh, totally, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they really do have control over us and the, and the fallout of our sexuality. 
Yeah, it's true. And I think that one of the things I wrote about in the book is that the way that's happening is getting harder to understand, but more and more powerful. So I think most people, so like, for example, in 2019, a lot of states were passing these outright bans on abortion. And there was this huge, I mean, my phone blew up all the time. It was like, everyone was like, oh my God, abortion rights are in jeopardy. And what was sort of funny to me is that the more effective threat to access to abortion is not that kind of ban. The the sort of thing that's made a big difference and continues to make a big difference is really hard to understand. It tends to be based on sort of like specious claims about the reality of abortion, like whether abortion is safe, whether abortion providers are trustworthy. So part of, I think, what I can hopefully do today is to explain how those laws work, because they're probably already affecting you and you don't understand why or how. How do you even track all that stuff? Like, how do you you know, it almost seems like they make it more complicated and more confusing so that we don't know what's going on, so they can slide those laws under our nose so that we don't realize that, you know, it's full of pork belly legislation and all, all that stuff, so that we don't know that they're taking away our rights because they're chipping away at them slowly behind our back. Yeah, I mean, I think that obviously part of the the idea of my whole, you know, what I do is that I, I think it helps to know the history because, If you see a group of people coming to say, oh, you know, we're not really interested in banning abortion, we're just interested in protecting the health of pregnant people, and then you look at the fact that they've been doing stuff to restrict access to abortion for decades and that it's literally the same people in the same organizations, it helps you understand what's going on. So I think knowing, and as is always true, right, if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it, but I think that's especially true in this space. And I think it helps to sort of follow the people, if you will, right? It's kind of like people who follow politics in general. It tends to be the same kind of major players who show up in the stories over and over again. So if you follow what they're doing, that kind of helps you better understand. But sometimes you need, it's kind of like why people call into your show, you need experts because it's very much the idea that people will not fight for their rights if they don't know what's going on. And also that the Supreme Court will be more likely to sign off on efforts to chip away because they don't want to have a big political backlash, right? They don't want their reputation to go down. But if people don't even know what's happening, they're not going to get angry, right? There's not going to be a backlash. So these stealth attacks are the ones that I think are the most significant. So true. So the other day, I have an office in New Haven and in Santa Monica. The other day, Mm -hmm. I'm in New Haven. Across the street from my office is Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. And on Saturday, it's abortion day. And outside are the protesters, right? They're there every Saturday morning. And the right to life people who carry the big posters of dead babies and plastic flowers and flags. I don't know what the plastic flowers are about, but they walk around the building with their wagons full of plastic flowers. And just the other day, they were all standing outside, you know, yelling in their loud prayers at these poor young girls, half of whom are there for birth control, by the way. But Um, They're not there for abortion. But what killed me is that none of them were wearing masks. We are right now in a pandemic where masks are critical to save lives. So they are supposedly (laughs) pro-life, breathing their COVID germs on these young women as they go in to supposedly do something that's totally against their philosophies around being anti-abortion. You almost had to hold me back physically from going on the street and pushing them over. I was so upset. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about the pandemic is that, you know, of course, there's no one definition about what it means to be pro-life or who is pro-life, right? I mean, but I think one of the things the pandemic reminded me of is that there's been a kind of decade-long trend in the anti-abortion movement of becoming more and more skeptical of scientific authority. And that started because anti-abortion groups would want to say, for example, that abortion increases the risk of breast cancer or of infertility or of, you know, a lot of other things. And then elite medical organizations came out and said, no, that's not true. And so instead of accepting that as fact, people had such an ideological commitment to being opposed to abortion that they just said, no, these medical authorities are being politically correct. They're just feeding us a line of BS the reality is that abortion actually is dangerous. So increasingly there was what you see now during COVID, right? Distrust of the media, distrust of doctors, distrust of medical expertise, a kind of you know creation of alternative media, alternative sources of evidence, alternative sources of expertise. So in, in a way it's not surprising, it's just depressing because the trends you see playing out now, you can see you know in the abortion debate in 2007 and 1992. I mean, that was one of the sort of depressing things about writing the book was you could see the threads that brought us to this really dark place going back decades when people didn't even really know what was coming. It's so polarizing too. Like, you know, how people feel about this issue is not neutral. There is mm-hmm. no neutral stance. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things, there's a couple things that's, that are disturbing about the polarization, especially lately. One is that people don't agree on the facts anymore. So in theory, you could imagine people disagreeing about abortion, but saying, okay, we're going to get on the same page about maternal mortality or something, right? We all care about mothers, or we're going to get on the same page about discrimination against pregnant employees or something. But because no one even agrees on what reality is, that's very hard because they think people on the other side are like crazy and evil and whatever. So that's part of the problem. And it also makes it hard for people who have complicated views on abortion, right? Like patients who think, I wouldn't want to have an abortion, but I think it should be legal. Or people who think some abortion should be legal and some shouldn't or whatever. There's just, they can't even begin the conversation because all they see is people looking really pissed off and screaming at each other and not really having like a coherent conversation. So if you found yourself in what activists call the mushy middle, right, where you don't know what to think or you're ambivalent, it's really hard to find a safe space to talk about that, at least in politics. Obviously, in, in medical settings, there's a space for that. But in political debate, I don't think there usually is. No, and I really appreciate how you're bringing up the difficulty of this conversation during the pandemic and what this is doing to this particular conversation, because I imagine it's affecting people's access to abortion and also access to the information. You know, the information about what's happening, like you said, how it's so stealth, how things are happening behind our backs almost. Yeah, well, the pandemic, I mean, early in the pandemic, we had these flat bans on abortions in about eight states that said abortion was a non-essential service. That was during stay-at-home orders. And now, obviously, because all of those states open very quickly, there are no more stay-at-home orders, therefore no more bans on abortion. But there's still pretty serious barriers to care, but because over, I think it's 18 states ban telemedicine abortion, essentially, by requiring that a doctor be in the room when a woman takes an abortion pill. That means that even as I think telemedicine has exploded, right, as you can imagine, it's gone up 8,000 percent between 2019 and 2020, and yet states make it illegal for abortion, even really early trimester abortions, which means in some cases that you have people traveling out of state, right, or traveling long distances to get abortions at a time when we're being told not to do that because of the pandemic. 
And some people just don't have access to that kind of transportation, whether it's public transportation or driving. So now you're really polarizing the privilege and the non-privilege. And that's just... Yeah, and I'm sure you're affecting people's sexuality too, because there's been reporting from Guttmacher and NPR and elsewhere that some women don't want to have as many children because the pandemic has made it impossible to get childcare or because they're postponing childbearing. And you have to take that into account, right, when you're having sex. So if you don't know if, when, or how you're going to be able to get an abortion if something goes wrong or get access to birth control too because of the pandemic then that will affect everything you do. And a lot of this information is getting lost in the media bombardment about presidential election and the terrorizing around the pandemic information. And so you are really on top of all the details of what's happening in the legal system. I don't want to overwhelm people with the details that they don't want to know, but I, I also want to tell our listeners, like, what, what's important? Like, what do they need to know? Where do they focus their attention? Well, I think probably the first thing to do is to pay attention to what seem to be kind of like not sweeping abortion restrictions. So most of us pay attention when anybody says something is being banned. So last year there was a block the ban movement when states like Alabama banned all abortions or tried to and states, other states passed these so-called heartbeat laws that banned abortion when a doctor could detect fetal cardiac activity. And those were splashy, right? They banned abortion. They didn't make exceptions for rape and incest. But those are not likely to be the thing that results in abortion rights going away. It's likely to be a much slower, stealthier process involving laws that are more kind of incremental, right? So some examples, states have started banning abortions for specific reasons, like race or sex or disability. They've started banning really important abortion techniques, like pretty much all surgical abortions. They've started banning abortion at later in pregnancy. And the reason those things are, are being done is because the savvier anti-abortion people know that the Supreme Court is more likely to uphold them and more likely to go slowly when dismantling abortion rights. So I think it, if you're interested in this issue, you really kind of have to keep your eye on the ball because this is not likely to be kind of like a bolt of lightning and abortion rights are gone. This is much more likely to be a process that takes years and tries to kind of fly under the radar. And that just happened with the Supreme Court's decision this summer, which I think already set us on a path to the elimination of abortion rights, but in a very subtle way. Can you explain what that was to people in a way that They'll understand. Yes, absolutely. So the Supreme Court was dealing with this case that required abortion doctors to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. And the state of Louisiana argued that was necessary to protect patients, which there was no evidence for, and also argued that abortion providers shouldn't even be able to bring lawsuits in the first place because it was like the fox guarding the hen house, right? It was sort of people who didn't care about patients and were out to make a buck being asked to look out or being representing their patients' interests. And everybody at first, all the headlines at first were sort of, oh, wow, this was a big win for abortion rights because Chief Justice Roberts joined the more liberal other, his more liberal colleagues and struck down this law. And that seemed like a big win. But what people didn't notice was that Roberts didn't actually join their opinion. He wrote his own opinion. In settings like that, his opinion is the one that makes the law, not the more liberal opinion. And his opinion rewrote the rules that apply to all abortion regulations going forward, which means it's going to be a lot easier for conservative legislators to write restrictions that the Supreme Court will uphold. So 
the kind of big win for abortion rights was not a win. It was probably a loss. And that means that fears everybody had last summer of the court starting down the road overruling Roe v. Wade are still very real, right? If anything, I think you should be more concerned than you were before. Well, that's depressing. (laughs) 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 And, you know, not very sexy. And people should, you know, panic a little bit. The other thing that struck me that you were saying is as they chip away at our rights, as you said something about a race, sex, and disability. Can we just go back and explore that for a minute? Like, how is yeah, that so affected? One of the things that, as you can imagine, questions about race and racial justice are kind of in every topic, right? Everything Absolutely. we talk about has to do or should make us think about race or racial justice, and abortion is no exception. So Abortion opponents point to the history of eugenics in the United States, and they say, you know, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was a racist, and she wanted to, you know, quote-unquote, improve genetic stock by preventing certain folks from having kids. And then they kind of make the leap that that motivated, you know, the reproductive rights movement of the 1970s, or that that motivates people now when they have abortions. So, In practice, right, if you're banning abortion for reasons of race, sex, or disability, it's probably not going to make a huge practical difference in the short term because, of course, no one is going to come in. Well, an abortion provider, first of all, would be like, hey, by the way, you can't have an abortion for reasons of race, sex, or disability. Why are you having this abortion? And absolutely no one is going to be like, oh, well, it's actually for the illegal reason. Like, even if that were true, which it's probably not. Um, I don't even, by the way, I don't even really know what race selection would mean. That's sort of hard to understand. But what it's designed to do is not, again, it's the long game, right? It's not to say these restrictions are going to make it impossible for you to have an abortion tomorrow. It's to set the precedent that you don't have, you don't really have a right to abortion, right? They can start saying why you can have an abortion, how you can have an abortion, when you can have an abortion. And then eventually they're going to come to the court and say, this whole right to abortion thing is a joke anyway, right? I mean, you've whittled this away to nothing, so why not just get rid of it? So it's significant, not because it would make a difference tomorrow, although it might for some people, but primarily because it would set the stage for something bigger down the road. Right. Well, and I've also heard the argument that if more women who are black or indigenous or people of color are getting abortions, then it is a racist issue. And perhaps Mm -hmm. it is about, you know, culling the population and therefore liberal-minded people should be aware of this and therefore should be pro-abortion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've seen, so historically there was always this, they called it race genocide argument. Um, And there was some, there were some people who supported legal abortion and and really birth control access too, because they were racist. I mean, that's a historical fact. But I think when people get tripped up is by conflating some random white donor from 1972 with absolutely everyone having an abortion today. Like that doesn't work as a historic argument. But I think that the reality too, and I think this is a racial justice issue, is that a lot of women of color and particularly black women have abortions at a disproportionately high rate. And that's not something I don't think that should be celebrated. That's probably happening because they don't have access to other forms of reproductive health care in the way that they should. Exactly. And that's happening even more now. Another fun fact from the Supreme Court this summer, uh, the court signed off on regulations that the Trump administration put in place, basically allowing a lot of employers who claim to be religious to cut off birth control 
reimbursement under their health insurance. So that resulted, I think, estimates were in at least 135,000 people losing access to birth control. So I think if it's true that there's a racial justice aspect to it, but it's not, I think, as simple as just I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure there are enough racists in America that I'm sure there are people who are racist who support abortion rights, right? I mean, there are people who are racist who do absolutely everything, so why not? But to say the whole movement is about that is not historically accurate. So you wrote a wonderful article in The Atlantic about why Norma McCorvey beliefs matter. And McCorvey was Jane Roe from Roe mm-hmm. versus Wade. And there was some idea that she converted to the idea of being all all on top of this because she was getting paid. Mm-hmm. Can you just translate that for us? Like, what exactly was that about? Well, so there's, I'll give a plug here. My colleague, Josh, is writing a book on Norma McCorvey that will probably be like the definitive book that will be out next year. But there was this movie on FX that established that Norma was, or argued and sort of proved, had her on camera saying that she had been paid to become or to say that she was pro-life. I think one of the reasons that that interested me was the sort of so what, right? Like, why does anybody care? Because let's just say that Norma McCorvey did decide she didn't want to have an abortion. A lot of pro-choice people would say, well, that has no bearing on whether I should have to do what she did or whatever. So the question is sort of why does everybody think this? And I think it was because she became a symbol of the idea that abortion actually hurts women. And so people were saying, if, if abortion was really good for women, then why would the Roe v. Wade, Norma McCorvey, have changed her mind? And so that's why people get so exercised about whether she changed her mind, because she's not just one more woman who either did or did not feel good about her abortion years after the fact. She's sort of become a symbol of whether abortion is good or bad for us. And that's something that's become really important to the fate of of abortion access in the United States across the board. You know, I don't think pro-choice is the same as pro-abortion. Like, if given a choice, most women would choose not to get pregnant and have to have an abortion. Like, I don't know anyone who jumps up and down and says, yay, I'm getting an abortion. Like, it's not a it's not a good choice. But to not have the choice is the whole uh, dilemma, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's been it's definitely true of some millennial women that there is more of an effort to say abortion can be like a good thing, not just a choice. One of the things that was interesting to me in, in, in studying this is how the whole choice idea came about and how people are feeling about it now. And some people think that it's true. I mean, I think it's true in the sense of a lot of patients experience abortion as not a positive thing. And like I was mentioning about women of color, it may be a function of some other failure of our society, whether that's about access to family planning or access to adequate housing or access to an adequate income or access to adequate health care. But I think other people do see it as a positive good and worry about stigma, basically, right? If you say you're not pro-abortion, you're pro-choice, does that mean you're inadvertently saying that abortion is bad or that anti-abortion folks are right about that? So that's an area where I think it's really hard to know what the right language is, because I think both ways of framing it have a lot of truth to them. Yeah, totally. I have something else I want to talk to you about that I'm really excited to have you as our expert uh, because I think you have the information that we all need to know. But I want to hold that thought and talk to you after we come back. Hi, sexy listeners. We know you're out there, but we want to know more about you. 
And we want to know about your relationships and your concerns about sex. If you want to spare just a couple minutes, take our listener survey at the troublewithsex.com homepage and click on the survey link. Just type in your email. And as a bonus, you're going to be entered to win our new sexy overnighter tote bag. It's filled with tons of pleasure products. It's perfect for any steamy weekend getaway or even a staycation at home. So please visit thetroublewithsex.com right now to take our survey and enter to win. So Mary, we have a question from one of our listeners. Ben from New Haven wants to know, why has the phrase anti-choice never caught on with the pro-abortion people? It seems like that would be the opposite of pro-choice. Yeah, I think people who are pro-choice often do use the term anti-choice. It's been, I think, more interesting that it hasn't caught on in the media or with academics. I mean, I count myself in that camp. I think there's been a tendency either to use the terms that people prefer for themselves. So in other words, to say, if I'm writing about you and you want to call yourself green spaghetti monster, I'll just go with that because I'm not editorializing. Or to try to find some kind of neutral language. So the AP, for example, uses abortion rights and anti-abortion because it's it's sort of the opposite, right? Where then you take nobody's preferred language and try to find neutral language. But I think, so what you found is that anti-choice is a term that's used, but it tends to mostly be used only by people who agree that anti-choice people are are wrong, right? (laughs) It hasn't caught on with a kind of bigger audience. It's one of those things where, I mean, in writing about this myself, I don't, I mean, there isn't really a solution that I love, right? Because I'm trying, I'm a historian. So when I'm writing about this, I'm trying to kind of say, here's actually what happened. And then you figure out if you're creeped out by it. I'm not going to sort of interject and say, you know, hey guys, this was terrible. Like, I, I don't think that's my job as a historian. But I think by the same token, you know, there's a point beyond which neutrality can become difficult, right? So I think, it, and that's a problem that you see reporters and scholars struggle with all the time. Yeah, totally. But it would make sense, right? Because the idea of anti-abortion is different than anti-choice. And so I I totally get where that's coming from. And, you know, because really they are about taking away the choice. (laughs) They just don't want to call themselves that. Fascinating. So I'm going to ask you another question that I have that I'm dying to know if you can actually project into the future. You are a historian. So your new book is all about, you know, the legal history of Roe versus Wade and what's happened in the past that's brought us to the present. But I'm wondering if you were to project into the future, you know, 10 years, 50 years, where do you think this is going? Well, 50 years is really hard. I mean, I think in the short term, we're heading toward a world in which In the United States, at least, it's harder to access abortion, and maybe in some states, abortion is illegal. I think it's more likely than not that the Supreme Court will either overturn Roe v. Wade or do something that has like the same functional effect as overturning Roe v. Wade. And what that will mean in practical terms is that even more than is already true, your access to abortion will depend on where you live. So if you live in Alabama, you may risk a prison sentence by having an abortion. And if you live in California, it might even be easier, right, in some states than it is now. The reason it's harder to predict what's going to happen after that is, of course, whatever the Supreme Court says about Roe v. Wade, that won't be the end of the story, right? There'll be a fight in every state and there'll be a fight at the Supreme Court. It's not like pro-choice people are going to just give up on the Supreme Court before they lost. I mean, if history teaches you anything, right, it's that anti-abortion people lost in 1973. And here we are 
almost 50 years later where they're probably going to win. So you'll just see the same thing in reverse where pro-choice people are trying to undo what anti-abortion people did. I think in the short term, though, you're likely to see things continue to get bleaker in terms of abortion access before anything changes. That's really depressing. And it sounds a little bit like we have another question from a listener who's Dave from New York, who says, it sounds a lot like Brave New World. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in a way, I think it's a reminder, I think, of how much people disagree about the relative importance of reproductive health and even about the facts about reproductive health. And it's, I think, one thing, I live in Florida, right? And I live on the Florida panhandle. So I live relatively close to Alabama and Georgia. And I think people who live in blue states often sort of do this thing where they're like, oh, you know, let's secede and let's toss Alabama into the ocean. And I think <laughs> as we we get to a world where it's more likely that people in those states won't have any abortion access, it would sort of behoove people in blue states to be more like sympathetic because to some degree, all the problems we're talking about are not going to affect you if you're a relatively well-to-do person in a blue state. It's just not going to matter to your day-to-day. Whereas if you happen to be, you know, a poor Black woman in Mississippi, it will very much affect you. So it's good to remember that people in kind of deep red states are not all on board with what their state legislators are doing. They're just outnumbered. I really like that. So it's not that people are on board, they're just outnumbered. Yeah, and I think it's especially true if you look at who's trying to have abortions in the South and can't. It's primarily low-income women of color, right? So that's not a group of people where you want to just sort of wash your hands of whole regions of the United States and say, you know, have at it to <laughs> legislators in those places because it doesn't affect you. I mean, I think one theme of the history of abortion rights has been a kind of, and it's disturbing, right, but people who are supportive of abortion rights kind of turning a blind eye to things that don't affect them personally, like the Hyde Amendment being the most prominent example. There were tons of pro-choice Democrats who voted for the Hyde Amendment because they were doing it to get other things. It was in an appropriations bill. So they got other goodies and they were willing to sign off on that. And that was partly because they thought the Supreme Court would get rid of it, but it was partly because it didn't affect them, right? They didn't need Medicaid to pay for their abortions. They had their own money. So I think one theme you see often in this history is people forgetting about the people who are the most likely to be affected by abortion restrictions, which tends to be, you know, non-white, poorer folks. What's the Hyde Amendment? So the Hyde Amendment was passed in 1976, and it says that if you're a patient on Medicaid and you have an abortion, you have to pay for it out of pocket. Medicaid (sighs) won't pay for it. And what that's meant is that ever since 1976, lots of poor or low-income women have to find money to get an abortion from somewhere else. In effect, that means they're having abortions later because it takes them longer to save up. They already have to give their reasons, right? If you get a Medicaid-based abortion, you have to say, you know, I, I was raped or whatever. Like, it won't cover. So Medicaid will cover, like, limited instances and rape and incest and so on. It can be demeaning. It, it means, in effect, patients can't access abortion. So that was a big deal because... The pro-choice movement, in my opinion, didn't do a ton to stop the Hyde Amendment. And until recently, no one has really done much to dismantle the Hyde Amendment, right? For a long time, the Democratic Party platform didn't oppose the Hyde Amendment. And so there's been this kind of long-standing, you know, as long as it's not my body or my right, 
you know, I don't care. And there's still a little bit of that. I think that's shifting. But um, that's if you think you're for reproductive justice and not just for reproductive rights, that means especially caring about people who don't have resources to navigate this stuff as easily as you do. Yeah. Well, I mean, back in the 70s, you know, I had an abortion. I was underage and Mm -hmm. I had to cross picket lines to get to the clinic. And the clinic had been not bombed, but there was a bomb threat that morning. And there had been bomb threats every week before that for months and months. And the experience was very mixed for me. Like people were really shaming, you know, the the protesters yell stuff at you as you walk through Mm -hmm. the picket lines. And the people working there, for the most part, were very compassionate and understanding, but also very judgy. Mm-hmm. And back then, it was really expensive. I can remember it being like $400 in the 70s. You had to pay for it out of pocket as a young kid. Like, that was tough. So I can imagine that for people who have to drive out of state, who don't have support, who don't have family, who don't have resources, you know, that experience is really painful and difficult and scary. Yeah, well, and a lot of these stealth restrictions we've talked about kind of add to the expense and the difficulty because they mean, in effect, that, like, for example, laws that require a waiting period. That means that you can't go to a clinic and have an abortion the same day. It means that you have to probably stay in a hotel. So a lot of women who have abortions already have children. So that means they have to find not only, you know, drive someplace and save the money for the abortion, they have to find childcare, they have to find housing. And of course, if it's taking them longer to get the money to have an abortion, that ironically drives up the cost of an abortion because the later in pregnancy you wait, the more expensive the procedure becomes. So if you're thinking about, you know, how these laws are affecting low-income people, a lot of them are affecting low-income people and disproportionately affecting low-income people. So it's definitely true that if, you know, Roe v. Wade were gone, that would affect everybody. It wouldn't just affect low-income people. But as is true with, you know, so many things, the people with the fewest resources get hit the hardest. Well, I just think about my kids, you know, I think about their lives. You know, I have children from 20 to 29, and, you know, I think about they would not have that option if something happened or if they, you know, were trying to, you know, finish college and or if they got raped, God forbid, like something horrible happened. You know, to not have that option is really kind of terrifying to me. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that people haven't really thought through is that we don't know how far it would go, right? And so I think some of the whole like handmaiden's tale, like people would criminalize sex, I don't think we're going there yet any or anytime soon. But the more kind of realistic thing to worry about to me is what if you have a state that could ban abortion, the question to me is, well, what do you mean by abortion, right? So some anti-abortion groups, for example, say, a lot of birth control, they think, is an abortifacient, right? So like the birth control pill, they think, is an abortifacient, and IUDs are abortifacients. And obviously, the morning after pill would be considered an abortifacient. So then if your state bans abortion, does that mean they're banning birth control? And then on the flip side, some assisted reproductive technologies, right? If you have infertility, you might need additional assistance. Some anti-abortion groups view a lot of those reproductive services as abortifacients. So is your state going to ban, you know... IVF. (laughs) Yeah, for example, right? IVF or ban the destruction or storage of embryos. I mean, it's not clear what that's going to mean either. So I think if you're kind of looking for the sort of scariest scenario, that would be the one. And I think it's also realistic to imagine, I think quite realistic to imagine that women will be punished too. If you look right now, the anti-abortion movement is very clear in saying, no, we're not going to punish women. We're going to just punish doctors. But for all the reasons we've been talking about, 
I don't see how that would work, right? If you were a woman, then you would say, I'm going to drive out of state or I'm going to order some pills on the internet. I'm just not going to abide by that. So that's going to leave these legislators with the option of punishing women or punishing nobody. And you can guess they're not going to go with punishing nobody. So I think it could get pretty grim in some places, even if, again, it a lot depends on your zip code. Well, and I think the scariest thing is even with the increase in midwives and doulas and the the return to a, a broader scope for female doctors, just because the abortion is banned doesn't mean women are not going to abort. <laughs> you know, we're going to go back to the time of like, you know, wire hangers in an alley kind of thing. Hopefully we'll have more technology and more availability for women who will have access to you know, what we used to call back alley abortions. But the point is that women are still going to do it, whether it's legal or not. And therefore, like you said, the punishment will be on the woman, perhaps, or, or on the provider, or they're going to do it themselves. And they're going to try dangerous and perhaps, you know, lethal methods in order to abort, because it's a terrifying option for some people. <laughs> yeah, I think the wild card is going to be abortion pills, because obviously, the last time abortion was illegal, you couldn't get abortion pills in the mail and now you can. So I think the extent to which illegal abortions get really scary is going to depend on this kind of cat and mouse game where women are going to try to get these pills on the internet and this, these conservative states are going to try to stop them from doing that. Mm. It's a lot harder, of course, to stop people from buying stuff on the internet, but that of course means that there are going to be sketchy black market selling dangerous fake pills on the internet. So there definitely are going to be people who get hurt. And that that is scary. And I think it's also not clear to me that there won't be an attempt to get a nationwide ban on abortion. I mean, that'll probably be at the Supreme Court. I don't know if that'll work, but obviously we already saw, I mean, this last Supreme Court term, you saw senators saying, basically, we don't think these conservatives on the Supreme Court are not conservative enough for us. And we aren't even going to vote for Donald Trump unless he sort of guarantees us a court that will say there's a right to life and therefore you can't have an abortion in California or New York. That's coming too, I think. Like Again, I don't think that's going to work in the short term, but we're in a moment politically with a lot of this stuff where I think almost nothing is off the table. Including, you know, witch burning. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, like I feel like that's like the next step of regression where they're going to like start lighting up the pyres again. Like I I just, I'm a little freaked (laughs) out by it. And I just want to like wear my t-shirt that says, you know, you can no longer burn us. Like that's not going to work anymore. Yeah, yeah. I don't think, I mean, if you want to be more optimistic about it, I mean, there's stuff you can do. And then the other thing I think is just that it won't be as easy as that, right? I mean, at some point, even in a state like Alabama, you know, you're going to have to go to people in Alabama and say, oh, by the way, we don't want you to use birth control. I don't know if that will work right? I mean, even in conservative states, it's sort of easy to get people to say, oh, in the abstract, I'm pro-life and blah, blah, blah. But then when you actually have to come out and say, here's, by the way, this is what that's going to mean. It's a lot trickier an argument to make. So we don't know how that's going to play out. And then, of course, it's not like preordained, right? I mean, there's a lot people can do about who politicians are and who's voting on this stuff that can change the course of how things are going. Well, let's hope that, you know, when as women rise up and take over the planet, this is not even going to be a conversation that we're going to have to have and that we will, we can, we can work all this out and that women will not let this, this regression and loss of our rights actually 
you know, influence our children's futures. And, you know, before we end, I'd love to hear your thoughts on like, what, what can people do today? What's like a call to action for our listeners? Well, I think probably the most important thing you can do is vote and also to pay, actually like educate yourself about state elections. Because if you've noticed a lot of the stuff that I've been talking about is legislation from random states. It's not from Congress. It's not from the White House. And so I think that people on the right have been a lot better about caring about and educating themselves about state elections and therefore controlling state legislatures and governors and so on. So I think when you vote, take the time to look up who is running for random state offices and vote for people you agree with on that. You can give to an abortion fund if you want to help low-income people have abortions. Those help to fund people who would otherwise, you know, who can't get their Medicaid reimbursement for an abortion. And then I think probably the other thing you can do is just to stay informed because a lot of the stealth strategies we've been talking about depend on the idea that either you don't care or that you don't know what's going on. Mary, thank you so much. Tell us how we can follow you. My website is maryrzigler.com. You can find there all my books, all the op-eds I've done, all the media interviews I've done. Thank you again so much. I know this is such an important conversation. I can't imagine a better person to talk to us about it today. And I wish you the best of luck with your work. Thank you for having me. This episode was brought to you by our friends at UberLube. Go to uberlube.com. And thanks, everybody, for joining us. I can't wait till next time. To find out more, go to thetroublewithsex.com or email me at drtammy at thetroublewithsex.com. Join our mailing list, follow us on social media, sign up for our newsletter, or send me a question. The Trouble With Sex is produced by Brandy Savitt and Jane Applegate. Our audio is by Flavor Lab New York City. This episode was recorded on location by Bruce Hirschfield and mixed by Eric Stern with music by Bruce Hirschfield.